Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran of KGNU, as always my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And we're here in studio with Stephen Schwartz. And uh, do check out the broadcast edition, the Radio Book Club edition of this interview, because we talk a lot more about what's happening and the premise of The Tenderest of Strings, which is Stephen's latest novel. And uh, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the themes we touched on, but we didn't get into too much. We talked um, a lot about life in small town eastern Colorado. And and you said that, you know, you've kind of modelled Welton, which is a fictional town, um, on maybe Wellington or Windsor. Windsor, Both, sorry. Really. Both, really. Uh, Wellington is the smaller town. And uh, Windsor was the small town at one point when I started writing the book. And those towns have seen just such change. And I, you sense that that's coming to Welton as well, because there is discussion and, you know, of Tom living in this fabulous new development. And then there's the old downtown. But then you also have the agricultural, but then you have say the Latino families who live there. You've got the old rural families, you know, who've been there farming. And then you have the new families like the Rosenfelds come in. You know, are you seeing that mix in some of these small towns? Because you said you spent quite a lot of time walking around and, and checking them out. Oh, definitely. The demographic is much more mixed than when I first came to Colorado in, in 1984. Actually, I went to University of Colorado and graduated in 1973. That's the first time I came out. I was always looking for a way to get back. Um, and I... For all my time at uh, Boulder here at University of Colorado, I never drove up to Fort Collins. We just thought of it as just some farm town. And, in fact, uh, it, it was where we live now. It's probably the center of town, and it was a dirt road back then and small little houses. Everything revolved around the university, uh, and it grew exponentially. Uh, but some of these outlying towns have remained small in character also, um, although they are changing um, rapidly. I mean, the price of housing, for instance, is it's not like it is in Boulder, but I mean, it's half a million dollars or more than half a million dollars. And um, in the book, Ruben and Arth buy a house for 200 and some thousand. I'm not sure even if they could get a fixer-upper for that now. Yeah, I mean, I've been to some of those towns, you know, my family, my husband's family are from Milliken, Johnstown, that kind of part, mm-hmm. which I remember first going out there about 20 years ago and it was like a step back in time in many ways. And you would have the Grange Hall and various different things. Johnstown now is almost an extension of, I don't want to say Fort Collins, but it's so developed. I mean, these are almost suburbs of the, the bigger cities that are close by. Yeah, uh, Evans, uh, take a town like Timmouth which really was a farm town. Nothing was going on. That has the highest priced houses around now. Um, And it's become a true uh, bedroom community. And people are, of course, demanding all kinds of amenities there. And um, and it's it's just uh, uh, growing. And and these are no longer just sort of separate towns. They're more like satellite uh, places for, you know, Fort Collins or any major center near there. You have a funny moment in the book about about kind of the reaction to this. The lead character, Ruben, who's just moved there from Chicago, is writing opinion pieces about, you know, not wanting growth. And um, so basically somebody points out to him, like, well, you, you just got here. It's like the old shut the door behind you kind of thing. But seeing the West 
as an opportunity, a place to start again. Some of it did rely on it not being so suburbanized. And so like, like when I moved out here in the early 90s, it was starting, but you know, there was still plenty of space between Boulder and Denver that wasn't completely built up. And when you certainly the drive to Fort Collins looked completely different than it does now. And now it does remind me more of the places that live in the East Coast, whether it's Maryland or outside of Philadelphia, where you do see these long tracks of suburbs. And you might have to search a little harder to find that place to really start over than you used to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you have to drive pretty far out of Fort Collins before you, you get to something that looks agricultural out there. And Reuben does say that, he, and he's accused of being a NIMBY. Um, and he says, well, I mean, there should be a limit on everything, isn't there? You know, on elevators, how many people can get in? On this Serengeti, how many wildebeest there can be? Um, so, I mean, he has an argument for it, but the fact is that, um, like many people who come out here from other places, they want to close the door behind them. I want to talk a little bit more about Harry because he was such an interesting character in his arc. You know, as we said in the other interview, he ends up almost becoming wiser than the parents. And, you know, there's a lot happening in the plot that sort of really brings Harry into his own. And there's this constant question with the parents, Reuben and Ardeth, the why of Harry. And he eventually does go to a counsellor. I don't know, is he a psychiatrist or psychologist who... He actually kind of connects with a little bit, but he sort of, I don't want to even use the word diagnose. And this is what I want to talk about. It's like, we're, are we pathologizing every aspect of humanity, especially when it comes to young people? We're trying to slap names on us. And, and Harry's like, what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And the the counsellor just says something. It's about, it's about you can't let love in. You're, you're too sensitive. In fact, you have too much love to give. And I appreciated that he didn't come back with some diagnostic thing from a manual to say, okay, you have this, da, 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 da. Because I do think we are pathologizing so much these days. We're we're putting labels for better, but sometimes for worse. I think we're we're putting labels on on so many aspects of human behavior. Yes, uh, absolutely. And um, the, Neil, the uh, psychologist, doesn't say, well, you have a personality disorder, you have a mood disorder, or. Uh, he just tells Harry in very human terms that the problem is you're you're almost allergic to love. A little bit goes overwhelms you, and you have trouble letting it in. And then when he does open up, he overdoes it, and he can't control himself, and he winds up uh, scaring away the person that he gets involved with. Um, and yeah, I mean. I always wanted to be a psychologist. I was a psychologist, psychology major at CU. One of my novels is called Therapy. <laughs> my son is, as I mentioned, uh, a psychiatrist. My daughter's a clinical therapist. So, you know, it's in the family here. <laughs> we know where to go if we yeah. have problems. Just, <laughs> Just go call to the Schwartz us. house and, yeah. during the holidays. 1-800. And... <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it's, um, Maeve, what you say is just a, a, an excellent point is that people do become desperate for a diagnosis, but you you really have to be careful about reducing, especially a child, to a diagnosis. Um, and, and then trying to look at them completely through that lens. Um, 
And I, one of the things I wanted to do with Harry was show that um, he goes from being such a troubled adolescent to actually, in the final scene, uh, being pretty mature and, and pretty wise. And it was sort of my job to make that credible. But um, I, I've just always had a fascination with adolescent characters, and I write about them a lot. And I think it's because there is such a raw vulnerability with them. Um, they feel things so strongly and so uh, exorbitantly, and they often become, in, in stories, the emotional valence uh, of a book, where if you want to look for where that center of, of feeling and, and tenderness is, you can find it in the adolescent characters. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that so much when we're out of that stage of life. We forget about those massive feelings and how hard it is sometimes to just grapple with that. And then when we look at young people, we're, we're less um, understanding. You know, I remember even, you know, going back even much earlier, a preschool teacher when one of my, my youngest kid was going to preschool and she was just saying, you know, kids at this age have huge emotions and we have to honour that. And it's not always about trying to shut those emotions down. It's about just, you know, these are emotions and it's just sometimes they can't contain them. And that's why they're throwing a tantrum. Yeah. And even more so with social media. I mean, it's it's very difficult. Um uh, somebody like Harry is a loner, and if you have a child who's a loner, it's it's very difficult because you often feel like you want to help them, but you you can't help them because they still have to solve this problem to some degree by themselves. You know, and so much depends on the influence of their peer group. And when somebody like Harry, who doesn't really have a peer group, it's an additional struggle. You didn't really get into social media per se in the book. And that, you know, I have a 13-year-old now, and, and we're not letting her on social media at this point. And, um, but I know that that's a huge stressor now compared to even 15, 20 years ago for adolescents. And that's causing maybe this homogenation of, of what people can be or, you know, this, this trying to be more fit into with your peers even more than ever, you know, because there's so much pressure that you don't want to be called out on social media or something. And so, so you didn't have that in the book. Was, was that a, was that a decision you made at all? Or did you just kind of happened organically that, you know, this is kids alone or he's probably not going to be on social media as much or. It's, it's a good question. And partly it was because when I first conceived of the idea for this book, um, cell phones were just starting and there wasn't Facebook, um, and I had to retrofit some things in here. But also, I didn't want it to be a distraction. Um, you know, so occasionally I'll mention Jamie is watching sports on his phone, or there's a text from between characters. Uh, but you know, I I think when you have too much social media in 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 fiction, it takes away from what's going on internally with the characters, and. I didn't want them to be constantly texting on Facebook because it can make it could have made things more superficial than I wanted mm -hmm. it to be. I was interested in what is going on at the deepest level emotionally for all these characters with their urgent conflicts right now. I would imagine poor Harry would have been subject to the most atrocious online bullying. I mean, <laughs> yes. he was subject to good old fashioned in your face bullying at school and getting beaten up. If that poor kid had been on social media, I can imagine the torture he would have been put through too. Right, and so after 
a particular incident happens to him where there's violence uh, and he's bullied, um, if I had decided, okay, I'm going to show all the all the texts and all the posts on face, uh, uh, you know, on Facebook, I wouldn't be able to get to his. What's really going on with Harry? What's really going on with his parents? Like I say, I, I think it would have pulled away from that. Do you think if it was 100 years ago we could be having those conversations except we'd be saying telephones? <laughs> like, yeah. We can't have the telephone ringing in the scene. No, but but um, I, I I definitely agree. I think that – and I think a lot of novels – I think there's – you know, unless you know, unless the novel is setting out to make a comment specifically on social media, there is much less social media in contemporary fiction than there is in contemporary life. And so I think, and and I for one, I'm happy about that. I don't know how long it'll hold out, but but I do think that's an interesting decision that novels are making, whether they realize it or not. Well, and so many, I know we talked to several young adult authors who say they have to almost set their books in a time period before social media because mm-hmm. it's completely changed how particularly young people communicate. Absolutely. I mean, if if you really start opening that door, you have TikTok, you have Instagram, you 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 have all sorts of uh, sites, and after a while, it's just an inventory. And really, I mean, what novelists are interested in is consciousness. Uh, I mean, what would Henry James do with Facebook? Um, <laughs> so there's, you know, it, it could be a, a real distraction, and you're not. Uh, necessarily going to be developing the characters that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned in the uh, radio interview, you mentioned um, some authors. You mentioned, you know, with Fitzgerald and Conrad. Who, who are some authors or novelists who, who really inspire you or have inspired you over your career? Like, who, who do you really gravitate to, whether they're from 100 years ago or 50 years ago or contemporaries of yours? Well, I remember when I was in... 10th grade, and I wasn't a very good student. I was just was bored, and we read A Tale of Two Cities, and all of a sudden, a, a light went on somewhere. I thought, this is great. Look at all these characters. Look at the French Revolution. This is amazing, <laughs> and it just woke me up, and I think that sort of started me on a, on a path uh, towards, I want to write in a realistic way. Uh, I'm most interested in character. Um, I'm not interested in science fiction. Um, and then uh, I started reading Chekhov, who is such a master of the short story and can do so much uh, with characters. Um, Chekhov's definition of the short story was speaking briefly on long subjects. And of all the definitions I've heard, that's my favorite. Um, and how much he was able to pack in. Um, and I, I pretty much continued in that in that vein. Uh, one of my favorite books is Mrs. Bridge by Evan Connell, mm-hmm. a beautiful book written with eighty nine or eighty seven vignettes. Um, or probably you've read the novel Stoner by John Williams. Oh, I love that. Colorado author. Well, Colorado, he was in Colorado. Colorado for a author, while. which yeah. hardly got any attention until mm-hmm. it was reprinted by the New York Review of Books. And then it, and there's something about that book. It's just one point of view, there's no flashbacks in it, 
There's not a lot of ornate writing, but people become mesmerized by it. It just hits them in the heart. And I guess I've always looked for books like that and wanted to emulate it. Mm-hmm. Were you, you're Jewish. Were you influenced by, as you were in college and high school, was really kind of the golden era of, of Jewish novelists between Philip Roth, Bernard Malamud, Saul Bellow, you know, Cynthia Ozick was around. You know, like, did those kind of writers influence you at all, or were you paying attention to them? Oh, was I ever. Um, all those writers you mentioned, I probably have read almost everything by them. Um, and, in fact, this book, The Tenderest of Strings, in some ways is modeled on a Malamud novel called A New Life. Oh, I like that book. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful book about uh, Seymour Levin, Levin, who moves from Manhattan, has never been out of Manhattan, to uh, a college town in Oregon, which is really Corvallis, Oregon State University. And he tries to basically restart his life or f- find a new life there. And he's kind of a fish out of water, like Ruben is in my novel. And there are these books that are like shadow books. You may have read them 40 years ago, but you always keep them in mind. And they plant the seed of your own work. But absolutely. And and it's very intimidating to be a Jewish writer, to be honest. I mean, you're in the shadow of Roth, Bellow, even the ones who don't aren't necessarily claim that they're Jewish writers like Salinger and Heller, (laughs) Joseph Heller. I mean... Heim Potok is out there, too. Heim Potok, I mean. uh, yeah, it, it, it just goes on. And uh, you have to decide, well, I'm, I'm still going to, that's my material, too. I grew up Jewish. It was very important to my life. And I don't care if I'm sounding derivative. I just have to write what I, what I write. Well, your experience of maybe being Jewish in Colorado, I know it's a lot more diverse now, but you said you came here to see you in 1973. I mean, one of the being an other uh, aspect for the Rosenfeld family, Ardeth and Ruben, is the fact that they are Jewish. And there's not a lot of discussion necessarily about that from some of the locals, but there's an interesting interaction. I think Ruben's at the Rotary Club. And there's somebody there asking him about, well, how, how do you spell that name? And, you know, there's just undertones there that he doesn't get explicit about Ruben as a character. But then there's later on, there's a new doctor, a new family doctor, a young woman comes to town. She's Jewish and she connects with them. It's like, well, let's get together as Jewish families. And she's all gung ho for starting this community. I mean, what, what was your experience back in 1973? Well, uh, in 1973, I, I was sort of insulated in college, but I remember coming out here in 1984 when I finally got the job at CSU, and I stopped at a gas station, and I showed the uh, attendant my card, and he looked at it. He said, hmm, I know a Schwartz around here. Is he your brother? And I, I thought this would never happen in Philadelphia, where I was from. Um, but I think it's a kind of phenomenon in some ways that you become more conscious of your identity that you might have taken for granted in a in a bigger city like where the Rosenfelds are from, where you're surrounded by uh, people who are Jews or uh, African Americans, or um, uh, and and you don't think of yourself in that way. So in in some ways, Ruben's kind of reclaiming his Jewish identity here, um, and he decides to be somewhat proud of it. Um, you know, even if he is more secular, but he's quite happy when his son embraces it. So I grew up in Philadelphia as well, and my mother's Jewish, and I belonged to a Jewish youth group at one point, and um, I moved out to Colorado, and 
kind of left Judaism behind for the most part. I mean, we do Passover and a little stuff. But my daughter has decided, uh, after going to a cousin's bat mitzvah and some friends, that she wanted to get bat mitzvah. And so this doctor at the end of the book that Maeve mentions um, recommends Adventure Judaism to them. And that is actually the program that my daughter's doing. And when I read her the passage in the book, she's like, that's a great description of it. So did you have um, some uh, dealings with Adventure Judaism or how did you come up with that to be in the book? Yes. I never knew about Adventure Judaism until a, a, a good friend of ours, um, her daughter, was in it. And I came down here for the uh, bat mitzvah. And we went outside and we walked in a circle and it was very much about this spiritual awareness of the environment. And I thought, that's fascinating. I would have loved that instead of what my bar mitzvah was like. It just really wrote Haftorah, reciting Hebrew, and meant, didn't mean any. There was no kind of communion with nature or un, understanding of, of, of the world beyond just you know, the fact that I was not very good at, at, at reading Hebrew. <laughs> and originally, I had such a small portion that, you know, that I thought I'd just have to come in one day a week after school. But it, I was so tone deaf that the the cantor made me come in five days a week, and he would put his <laughs> he put his fingers to the bridge of his nose, and he would hear me sing, and he'd go, "Oi, oi, oi! You're hurting my ears! Stop!" You know, this did not give me confidence, so I never sang again anywhere, especially Hebrew. But anyway, yes, and I'm glad your daughter said that because um, I wanted to, to seem realistic, and uh, I thought about changing the name uh, to make it some other kind of, uh, instead of a venture in Judaism, something else. But I really couldn't part with that name. No, it's such no, a great no, name. Yeah, it is an amazing name. Judaism and, and adventure. That's what it should be. Yeah. It's a perfect blend of Colorado. <laughs> yeah, it's Judaism. a perfect blend of Colorado. So, you know, for Passover, we're the, the adventure rabbi is taking us all on a trip to Moab. So I'll be doing yeah. Passover in Moab. Yeah. That'd be fun, Seder. Or is <laughs> yeah. it Seder? Yeah, yeah Seder is Passover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, good luck with that. Well, you mentioned that you conceived of this book at the early advent of cell phones. So that was a while ago. So it's been sitting with you for a while and certainly the characters. So when you finish a book like this, I'd imagine you're very emotionally invested in all of these different characters because they have been living with you for so long. So what happens to them and their relationship with you? I mean, do you think about them? What happened next? Yes, I mean... It took me so long to get to this book where that there was that uh, right balance of what I talked about earlier with uh, voice and character and plot. For instance, there was no hidden run in an earlier version. And um, I had put the book away for many years, but my wife would never give up on it, and she always encouraged me to go back. And at some point, I realized that Yes, I had to rewrite this book, at least half of it, and I needed all that distance. Um, so it was very satisfying for me to feel like it finally all clicked into space. And I, I, I do find myself thinking about these characters, but I don't think about them in terms of a, of a sequel. I just think about, did I do my job by them? Um, did they live in this book? Did they, did they seem like credible lives? And, and occasionally, I will be somewhere I'll think, I wonder what Ruben would say here if I'm waiting in line at a grocery store where he's impatient. Uh, or I, I wonder how Harry's doing 
uh, now, what would become of Harry? Well, I wonder what Harry would be doing, but I have ultimate faith that he's okay because I think he went through an incredible emotional journey in the book and I think came out on the positive end of that journey. Yeah, Harry is never going to be a happy-go-lucky guy, Um, but he's a sensitive kid. And the question with people like Harry is what happens with that sensitivity? Do they use it for the better for them or does it lead them down the wrong road. And I think that's the question for any kid, any adolescent, any child who's more sensitive than your average bear. Like, what do you do as a parent to to um, kind of in, take care of that sensitivity, to shepherd that child through knowing that they do have particular needs that other children don't have? Yeah, it's a balance between, I think, acknowledging that and shepherding them through, but also understanding we need to give them tools to withstand everything that's going to be happening in the world too. I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a balancing act really, isn't it? It is a balancing act because you don't know how much to intervene and you don't know when necessarily you're being um, too uh, imposing in their lives uh, and when you're being too negligent and forgetting about them. So you're always questioning like, what responsibility do I have here as a parent and how much is too much and how much is too little. And sometimes you get surprised by something that they've done or are doing and you had no idea they were going to do it and you, you, you feel guilty that you didn't take care of them in the way you, you, you should have seen it. Well, we go back and forth. Like I think, you know, certainly in the 60s and 70s, it was, seemed like a lot of parenting would seem almost negligent now. Like <laughs> the parents were so now absent. it's called free range parenting. Right. Just leave them alone. Yeah. And then, then you had, they're kind of the hover, hovering parents, right? Helicopters. Helicopter yeah. parents. And, you know, to strike that balance as a parent and, you know, get the kids from one place to another is, is not easy. And I, I remember when I became a new dad, and, and I thought the best piece of parenting. Advice. It was in. I think it was in a book, which I hardly read any books about parenting. It's the one topic I was just like, I'm just going to figure this out. Like, the books are going to screw me up. But <laughs> so I um, but I think it was a book that surveyed different parenting styles, and the conclusion was, if you have a parenting style at all, you'll probably be just fine. Like, like the fact that you're actually paying enough attention to, to get together with your partner and figure out how you actually want to raise a human being. It almost doesn't matter what you do as long as you're kind of talking and figuring it out. One of, one of the um, issues for Ruben in this book is that he has lost his brother, Harry, who is this kind of golden child. He's the star. And Harry has died very young. And Ruben wants to recreate this family that he, he never really had. So there's a lot of pressure on his firstborn, Harry, who he names after his you know, beloved dead brother in the Jewish custom, which you often do name uh, you know, your, your son after a dead relative. Um, but Harry carries so much expectation uh, of, of that unconsciously. And I, I always think about that in terms of what parents put on their children, the, that, that kind of unconscious weight I often think about that with naming because you're a I'm number the arson. You're I'm the arson th- cash cash in the third. Yeah. And my grandfather, who, who lived to be like 97, so I, I had him in my life till I was about 40, 
he he was the one who came over from Turkey, you know, during the Armenian massacre and founded a business and, you know, worked forever. And then my dad was first generation and became a lawyer. And so I moved to Boulder. I was like, I'm getting out of Philadelphia. Like, I'm here you are doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, yeah, the weight of expectations and, and, and also how the firstborn, you have two here, right? And Harry and Jamie. And Jamie doesn't really, he's in the book, but he's not really uh, a major character. But I sometimes wonder, is he really a major character for the parents? I mean, when you're a parent, if you have two kids or, or if, you, if you're the second or third child, they always say, like, they're always hardest on the first kid, right? And that's Harry in this book. Well, this is often what happens in families. When you have a child who's the problem child, they get all the attention. And so when you have a well-behaved, cooperative child, uh, complacent, uh, who usually is trying to please, as I was in my family, I was a younger child, you you just take that child for granted because all your energy is going to taking care of that problem child. And I think that's something that you try and balance out, but oftentimes you can't help, especially in, when a character is in such a severe situation as, as Harry is here. Well, we saw some flashes of a rebellion from Jamie slash James yes. as he enters his teenage years. Maybe that's the sequel right there. The Why of Jamie yeah. slash James. <laughs> I'm really happy you didn't go with that as a title, do you? <laughs> well, all, I was going to say, all, all the proposed titles you mentioned in the first um, on the radio broadcast, I think The Tenderest of Strings is so much better. Oh, so. thank you. <laughs> well, it's been a delight to read it and to talk to you, The Tenderest of Strings by author Stephen Schwartz, who has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can get the broadcast version, the other interview as well. And uh, Stephen, it's been so great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And the after Hours at the Radio Book Club and Radio Book Club podcast is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.